Welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. We are coming to you from Katowice in Poland at COP24, the UN Climate Conference. I'm Kate Midden here with reporter Michael Igo and freelance contributor Andrew Green to give an update on negotiations this week. Michael and Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So there's a lot to unpack that's been going on this week. Coming into it, we knew that we were going to be looking at some big issues around the influence of the fossil fuel industry, you know, issues around ambition, something we've heard about a lot, whether climate champions like Germany and France would kind of hold the line in light of a lot of, of a kind of anti-climate tide. Um, and all of these things are, were, of course, going to influence the outcome of the Paris Rulebook, which is the implementation map for the Paris Agreement that was agreed upon in 2015. So I just want to walk through some of those different stories and kind of give updates on what we've seen this week, kind of what it means for global development, um, starting with this, this question around the influence of fossil fuels. Uh, Michael, you, you've done some reporting on this. Kind of what, are you, what are you seeing in terms of influence? Yeah, sure. So the story really kicked off, I think, when um, the first sponsor for COP24 was announced, uh, maybe a week or so before the, the conference actually started. And that sponsor was JSW, which is a, a Polish company, a partially state-owned Polish company that's also the largest producer of coking coal in the European Union. Um, so that kind of set an interesting tone for a climate change conference. And, you know, we walk into the conference center every day and, and there's JSW's logo projected on the wall. Um, so I think that, you know, that raised a lot of questions about who does get a seat at the table, um, what sort of access does sponsorship by a company like JSW. This conference, these, these COPs operate in sort of a, a complex arrangement where the UNFCCC is responsible for parts of it. And then there's a host country that's responsible for, for other parts of it, for actually hosting and, and paying for the, the conference. So, you know, I think it can be tricky to parse out what sponsorship at the country level means in terms of access to the negotiations, but, but that announcement raised those kinds of questions. And then when you see different countries come to the table that obviously have um, different interests uh, that might be influenced by the fossil fuel industry, that raises further questions. And we've, I think we've seen some of those dynamics bear out a little bit in the negotiations over the last couple of weeks. It feels a little bit like the elephant in the room with that is the presence of the US, who of course hosted kind of a pro-coal side event. Um, you, even early on in the first week of COP, there, there seems to be this kind of alliance or at least a shared goal between some powers like the US, Russia, Saudi Arabia, who are doing things like contesting the findings of the IPCC report and just generally being very pro-coal at these meetings. And it seems to have set a tone here. Is that your sense? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's couched in different ways and it's always difficult to draw very concrete conclusions. But um, you know, first of all, the, the role of the United States here is, is interesting and worth remarking on. Uh, I was just in a, a press conference an hour or so ago, and the United States was referred to as a, a lame duck party in the Paris Agreement. You know, President Trump has announced his intention to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. That can't happen um, until 2020. So as a result, um, 
the United States is still participating in these negotiations. And, and for the most part, under this administration, um, many would say playing a, a sort of a obstructing role. One of the ways that that came out uh, on Saturday was, uh, as you said, this sort of opposition to the IPCC report. So this was the special report on 1.5 degrees of global warming, which outlined essentially the differences between uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius warming and 2 degrees Celsius warm, warming, uh, and painted a really concerning picture about what those differences <laughs> include. Things like you know the entire Great Barrier Reef disappearing versus just uh, 70 or 80 percent or large portions of it. Um, so even at 1.5 degrees, there are really significant impacts of climate change at two degrees, the IPCC found, you know, extremely alarming impacts of climate change. So there was a question about how that report would influence these negotiations and, and how countries would um, sort of absorb the, the findings of that report and maybe reconsider their positions on some of these issues. And then on Saturday, uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia in particular, along with Kuwait and Russia, I believe, came out with this position that they didn't want to, quote, welcome the report into the uh, negotiations, as other countries were, were pushing to do. They only wanted to, quote, take note of it. And so that, you know, created this whole fiasco and lots of questions about what the difference was between welcoming and taking note and what their opposition was and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's been, uh, that's been sort of a tone setter here and, and I think really speaks to the, the strange role that the Trump administration is playing in the talks at this point. Yeah, I think one thing that I would add that I've heard people say is that you know, in the past it wasn't that much of a surprise that countries like Russia or Saudi Arabia would take these positions, but the fact that the U.S. is now so on board with them has made it, you know, made it more possible for them to have stronger influence and sort of enabled this kind of um, this, you know, this new um, this new era where you have a number of different superpowers kind of working against more countries than not that are on board with the Paris Agreement. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's basically right. One comment that I heard. Um, expressed over the last couple of days is that kind of the divisions have become clearer in these negotiations, um, that the sort of alliances have hardened a little bit, and that those countries that, that have a clear vested interest in, in maintaining a, a strong role for fossil fuels in the global energy mix for, for the foreseeable future um, are more aggressive um, in the negotiations. Uh, but as are the countries that are, are most vulnerable to climate change. So I think, you know, there's sort of um, that while the Paris Agreement was brokered under this sort of spirit of global cooperation and mutual agreement um, and, you know, unanimous consensus nearly, um, that maybe that general arrangement is breaking down a little bit. And what does that mean for developing countries? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, when we think about what developing countries are looking for, uh, it sort of falls into three categories, I think. So you've got this IPCC report that comes out that says, you know, countries are already looking at severe impacts. So what that means is that the developing countries that, um, well, every country needs to increase its ambition in terms of, of what it's going to do domestically to combat climate change, to mitigate climate change, and also to adapt to it. Um, so part one is that you know developing countries are looking for more ambition in these talks. Now, 
in order to do that, um, particularly developing countries need financial support because, you know, to first of all to come up with a, a national plan to deal to uh, mitigate and adapt to climate change, um, you can't just do that, you know, with a, a snap of the fingers. That's kind of a, a complicated um, enterprise to undertake. It requires, um, you know governance systems and policies and the ability to monitor and evaluate things and to establish baselines and all of that, which is difficult. Um, so developing countries are, are looking for financial support in order um, to be able to do that. And that was something that, that they were hoping to see here in the COP, and I think we'll probably talk more about that. Um, yeah, ambition is a huge topic. It feels like the word that is coming out of everyone's mouth here, that there needs to be more of it, that it needs to be institutionalized or documented in a concrete way. What, When we talk about ambition in the climate change sense, what are we talking about? Yeah, so this is kind of the, the heart of the, the Paris Agreement. It's these nationally determined contributions. So the way that this this treaty is built um, is from the ground up and it's basically an experiment in the idea that countries can um, come up with national strategies on their own um, and hold themselves to account for a level of ambition and follow through that will amount to an adequate response to climate change when you put all of them together uh, but there's a huge gap between the NDCs that exist today uh, and what would actually need to happen in order to achieve our climate targets um, and so now what ambition means is a concrete commitment um, and a process for making those NDCs stronger, to include things in them that aren't in them now. And so what countries are looking for here, this year, uh, is something that explain, that first of all commits broadly to that goal of greater ambition, that all countries are going to go home and you know, look at the NDCs that they have and figure out how they can strengthen them. Um, and then also some sort of plan for uh, for demonstrating that commitment next year. Part of the uh, part of the ambition conversation, um, you know, of course, it is largely about financing. There have also been some issues that have bubbled up in terms of human rights. Andrew, that's something that you've been doing a lot of reporting on. You know, what are the big human rights issues, and how can how would what's decided here trickle down into these nationally these national plans? Yeah, I think just to, to add on to what Michael was saying, um, there was when when Paris was released, it was really quite ambitious. It was it was quite lofty and idealistic, and and this COP was really about translating that into a rule book um, that countries would take back and use to draft their own plans. And so what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that the rule book is actually a lot more important than what was agreed to in Paris because on a national level, people writing the plans are going to be referencing that book. They're not going to keep going back to the broader Paris Agreement. So they really want to see the ambition, even though it still exists in the Paris Agreement, translated into the actual rule book because they think that's kind of the most critical way of, of translating the ideas from Paris into actual uh, NDCs. Um, so one of the one of the big concerns, at least among activists here, has been the removal of language protecting human rights um, from the broader rulebook. And the reason why that's important is because 
while human rights guarantees are still enshrined within the preamble of the Paris Agreement, it's it's not something that then someone translating that into an actual strategy for thinking about projects that are uh, dealing with mitigation or adaptation is going to take necessarily take into account. Um, so then there you could see instances where it runs up against uh, a decision to um, build build uh, an adaptation project that um, that comes into conflict with a vulnerable community and then their their right to express themselves their right to assemble their right to potentially to life is, is not is not really thought about in, in the in the context of um, drafting that plan and and then by the time the human rights issues come to the fore agreements have already been reached and um, the process is already on its way and so then you might end up actually harming some of the communities that you're trying to protect by mitigating or adapting to climate change. Yeah, I mean, that seems like it just presents a great irony, exactly how you say that the Paris Agreement is supposed to make the world a more sustainable, livable place, and instead, without these commitments, it sounds like it could do the opposite. Exactly. So what, how did that, how did that language get, fall out of the draft, and what is the backstory there? Well, so it had never been um, fully enshrined in any of it, it. The language had existed over uh, the past two years in the various drafts that have been passed around. It was introduced by the Norwegian government, um, but always in brackets, which means that, that some countries had lobbed objections to it. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't ever fully agreed to. But then the last draft that appeared on Saturday, um, it had just disappeared completely. Human rights activists weren't weren't quite sure how that happened, and they're they've been lobbying um, the governments that they think might have removed it, or that might have been responsible for removing it, and they've been working with the governments that have supported it in the past to try to get it back in. Um, they were not particularly hopeful, but we'll see what comes out at the end. You know, if countries have signed up to the Paris Agreement, to a document like the Paris Agreement, what is the rationale for not having human rights language in it? Well, I think they, you know, you could potentially foresee these exact kind of complications that arise when you've got uh, a project that you want to that you want to push forward, um, and you don't necessarily want to take into account all of these different considerations. Uh, you kind of want to move forward. So, the more business-minded uh, government or people who are or are more interested in, in pushing business interests and and don't want to deal with all these potential immediate complications, it, it serves their interest to remove as many barriers as you possibly can. Something that we'll definitely be keeping an eye on in the final version of the Paris rulebook. And speaking of that, the rulebook negotiations have been pretty ongoing and contentious. At COP, you know, it's two weeks long. The first week is generally dedicated to the more technical negotiations around um, this year, the signature document, the Paris rulebook, it got extended by a couple days. Earlier this week, we were hearing that some negotiators were wondering if they were going to have to change their plane tickets. Uh, tomorrow is the last day, and it's starting to look like perhaps that will be the case. What are we hearing about, one, where things are with the rulebook, and two, how it's firming up? Yeah, so it's, first of all, I don't think it's um, out of the ordinary that this process would would drag uh, right into the end and into the um, the late hours of the end or even the extra hours at the end that's sort of par for the course for the the climate change negotiation process um, I think only a few maybe one of them is, is actually finished on time ever um, so perhaps people bought flexible plane tickets in the beginning anyway <laughs> hope um, springs eternal knowing that they knowing what they were already getting themselves into um, but I think 
So um, there are a few, a few issues. There's a lot that has to be done still in the rule book. And basically what that means is that there are choices that have been established now. And the way that <laughs> the sort of visual representation of this is that um, a document, or actually in this case, several documents exist that have variations of text that are all in different, they're, they're all bracketed. And you're kind of trying to choose between the different text and the brackets and eliminating words and, and figuring out which one everyone can, can agree on. Um, so that's what the actual process entails. I think one of the reasons that people are a little bit frustrated uh, is that there's con some concern about the way that the negotiations are structured this year under the Polish presidency. And I've heard some sort of simmering uh, criticism of the role that Poland is playing. Uh, there are concerns that the highly political issues, like, for example, the issue of differentiation, which uh, basically gets to uh, should there be kind of different common but different expectations placed on developing countries versus developed countries, given that developing countries, um, you know, both have challenges in terms of implementation, but also have contributed far less to carbon emissions over time. Um, how do some of those considerations factor into something like the rule book, which is supposed to establish rules? You know, do the rules apply somewhat differently in different cases? That's a very complicated issue and a, a, a politically contentious issue. And there's been some concern expressed that it's not being, uh, that the Polish presidency hasn't created adequate space for parties to tackle it, uh, that they've sort of broken things up into small working groups, but really the only way to deal with these issues is if everybody is dealing with them. A small working group isn't, isn't really enough. Um, so I think that's been one issue, is, is how do you tackle those extremely complex and highly political problems? And then the other is, um, again, gets back to this issue of, of ambition and what signal uh, Katowice is going to send uh, about parties' intention to be more ambitious and what the civil society groups and, and I understand from them also developing countries want to see and progressive developed countries who are behind this as well is a, a COP decision uh, which is sort of the, the most the highest level of the highest level statement that can come out of a, a COP like this. They want to see a COP decision um, on greater ambition. We've seen a few kind of side declarations. I think last night there was an event for the, the High Ambition Coalition, um, sort of unfortunately referred to as the hack, I believe. <laughs> um, and there, you know, you had a, um, a couple of dozen countries sort of express their commitment to be more ambitious, but what, uh, what parties here want to see uh, at least those who want to see more robust climate action is a comprehensive COP decision that um, expresses countries' commitment to uh, produce more ambitious NDCs ahead of 2020 um, and that that would be a universal commitment among them and that's been difficult to achieve. Earlier in the week, um, we heard from civil society groups during a press conference that the rule book is kind of at a crossroads. It was there are issues in it around, you know, uh, transparency and accounting and some of these other um, some of these other factors. And they said, you know, it could really go either way. Either the rule book will get watered down and there will be things that commitments that don't really mean as much as they could. Or this could we could see a lot of ministerial energy come into this process and make it a really strong document. Um, the UN Secretary General flew back in town yesterday to Katowice from Marrakesh, where he was 
you know, getting the global compact on migration adopted to try to infuse more, infuse some of that energy into the process. What are we seeing about, um, you know, have we seen that go one way or another yet, or does that remain to be to be foreseen? I think it. I think it remains to be seen. Um, the the Secretary General's role has been interesting. Um, a lot of other sort of high level international organization leads have been. Um, making similar statements about how it's really crunch time. Um, I think there's a, a little bit of a, a mismatch, like a structural mismatch. Um, from what I understand, you know, from what I've heard sort of on the sidelines here is that it's just sort of a, it's the general nature of negotiations like this to push to their uh, time limit. And the time limit is, yes, it's, it's COP24 this year to to finalize the rule book, but really the Paris Agreement kicks into gear in 2020. So I think there might be a little bit of a, a sense um, out there uh, that that parties sort of have until 2020 to finalize everything. So, um, but the problem with that is that that the ambition. That, well, first of all, every year um, that there's any delay in you know pretty drastic efforts to cut emissions um, and also you know important efforts to scale up adaptation um, the task just gets much harder and harder the IPCC report really emphasized that um, you know you have to do things at a shorter term and at a more ambitious scale so um, you know the reason that the secretary general is here is because there are limited opportunities to drive action he's having his secretary general's conference in September um, and, you know, it's in his interest to make that uh, an effective conference for scaling up an ambition. But the way to do that is to drive more ambition here first. So it has to be one step after another. And I think that's what we'll be looking for. What are the big questions that are still on your mind moving forward? Well, obviously, it's, you know, does this particular COP produce a COP decision? Um, I think that's the big one. Um, and then secondly, have we seen all that there is to see on the climate finance front. We've seen a few commitments trickle in, um, some significant ones from Germany, for example, to the Green Climate Fund. And then the World Bank released its its targets, including a, a pledge to double its climate finance. But is that all we're going to see, or are there any surprises yet to come? Something that we will definitely be following. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks.